0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and longtime listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Pro. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Harry Cunan. He He's the regional resource director for CARON Treatment Centers. He has also co-authored two books with his mother, Congresswoman Madeline Dean. Harry, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Andy, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right. Since there's no news coming out of Washington these days, I guess the most important question I should be asking you is, what are your thoughts on the Eagles firing Doug Peterson just three years after winning the Super Bowl?
1: It's pretty controversial.
0: Um, like you said, it's
1: it's been a quiet time in the media, so we, we're all focused on that up here. Um, you know, but at the same time, they they did win a few years back, but they've really struggled since then. So uh, hopefully change is a good thing in this in this sense.
0: It was so satisfying. I have so many friends that are <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles fans, and for them to finally – to finally win it uh it was it was joyful for for all of us that that got to watch it, especially the fact that it came uh to the neglect of the new england patriots which is always an amazing thing
1: that definitely made it quite a bit more more special
0: all right so in all seriousness um how was your mom doing after an attempted coup at the capitol just a few weeks ago
1: as of today she's doing really well um, so she's been named an impeachment manager she is very much hard at work um, but just to say I mean you know going back just a couple of weeks uh, it was really scary um, surreal in some ways not that surprising in others you know watching everything that had happened um, you know just from the perspective of a family member, you know, watching sort of my mom on TV go through that, it was a horrifying experience. Um, fortunately, I was able to talk to her on the phone kind of throughout the the chaos. So, you know, us at home watching the news, were almost in some ways able to see more and, and have a better sense of what was going on. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful that we were able to stay in touch throughout the day, but she has come out of it. Um, you know, as dedicated and motivated as ever to continue to to do the right thing and and try to maintain some accountability and normalcy back down there.
0: I just can't imagine as a son watching. Your mom go through that. Um, you know, I know how I feel about my mother, and I know the proximity of Philadelphia to Washington D.C. And I don't know if anything could hold me back from from going there. So I can't imagine what that experience was like for you to to witness that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, so I was working during the day. I had watched a little bit in the morning, and you know, saw there was a crowd there. Um, never would have expected. You know, a breach of the Capitol or anything like what what we saw. Um, but as I was working, I started getting some calls and texts. And um, if you remember, I mean, it it started out as a sort of a seemingly very optimistic day in terms of the the runoff elections. And you know, I I thought it was going to be more of a, a formality with the protest outside. But you know, at one point, um, somebody had sent me a picture of her, which you know was picked up all over later, but you know, her wearing a gas mask and, and it was terrifying. I mean, talking to her on the phone, it sounded like you, you could hear the very real fear, Um, you know, and it's, it's just scary and, and crazy in some ways that 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 could happen in, you know, 20 years after 9-11. But being that she was my mom, I mean, you know, it adds uh, quite a level of, sort of just anxiety. I I can assure you I got nothing accomplished the rest of the day as I continued to watch the news and scroll Twitter and and just try to follow everything as intently as I could um, until I saw that they were able to, you know, make it back out onto the House floor and and finish the vote.
0: You know, I mentioned in the opener, uh, you're the regional director for Care on Treatment Centers. Uh, Tell us about this organization and tell us about your work.
1: Absolutely. Um, so Karen is, you know, we're a nonprofit that has been around for a little over 60 years in the substance use uh, treatment field. I, you know, I'm so fortunate. Karen is actually where I went when I sought treatment a little more than eight years ago. Um, didn't know a lot about it then, but, you know, was able to come back and and start with this opportunity working for Karen about a year and a half ago. And it has been, just incredibly rewarding and fulfilling work. Um, you know, watching what we do in terms of the quality of care that we provide to to patients. Um, we have sort of multiple locations where our base is in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. We also have facilities in Florida and, and quite a few regional offices up up and down the East Coast. Um, but we provide a wide range of services from detox and residential treatment to outpatient, um, as well as regional support services. So it's just a fantastic organization that I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to work for.
0: So um, you and your mom must be tight um, because you've now written two books together. Um, The latest Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son. The book invites readers into your story of addiction and the difficult journey um, for your family along the way. Um, You wrote, I had more support and love than I could have asked for as a kid, but as I grew up, a pattern took shape. With all the commotion, all the house guests and laughter and lives that were busy beyond belief, it became easy to hide in plain sight. tell us about why you and your mother chose to, to write this book together sure um, so I, I will preface it
1: and say it was not originally our idea to write this book um, and you mentioned you know that we we're, we're close we are and, and we were close before this process and writing the process alone of writing the books together um, has only brought us closer but my older brother Pat is actually, a writer. Um, he had worked in the Obama administration and, and wrote a book after his time there. And his agent approached him sometime after that and asked him if he'd be interested in writing a second book. Which he said no. Uh, but my brother and my mom might have a story to tell. So that's really where where it came from. Um, I'd say for me, you know, a big part of it was I had wanted to do more. You know, I had wanted to be more of an advocate, you know, somebody on the front lines of this issue, um, and up until that point, I hadn't been. And you know, I think a lot of people talk about the stigma, and it's something that I'm very focused on. But you know, looking at it, what better way to really start to address the stigma and sort of show that that we can break from it than for for us to tell our story? Um, you know, so it's it's just been an incredible process since then. Um, but again, it you know not our original idea, but you know I think in my eyes I'm optimistic that you know through this book we can potentially help somebody um, by shining a light on this issue, by talking about it in an honest and vulnerable way, um, you know and not sugarcoating it. Looking at where we made missteps along the way and where things went wrong and where they went right and all in all, to see sort of the hope at the end of what what starts out as a very hopeless story.
0: Well, let's go right there uh, to talking about the open and honest nature of the book. Um, You know, I I would have to say that it seems uh, like an unpopular thing for politicians to be vulnerable and transparent in, in the current partisan climate. However, you know, your mom chose to write this a very honest book with you. I know you can't speak on her behalf, um, but do, what do you think? Um, you know about her bucking the culture, um, you know, by being so open and being so honest. I'm, I'm
1: incredibly proud of her for that. Um, you know, so when she had first gotten into politics, and I was earlier in my recovery. Um, She was very protective of, you know, not for her, but for my privacy, you know, to not sort of bring in our family experience into her work. Um, And she had sort of waited until I was, you know, we decided to do this and realized we're both comfortable with it. Um, You know, and it came up. Is this something that could be difficult politically? And, you know, I think in her eyes, it's an important issue. It's an American issue. This impacts uh, people everywhere. You know, it, there's no discrimination. There's no party affiliation uh, when it comes to the topic of addiction. So, you know, in the end, it's it's more about the importance of talking about it and not sort of hiding it. I think we saw firsthand in this presidential cycle some of the, the stigma that exists, especially with politicians and their families uh, related to this issue. So, you know, for us, it's this is our story, um, and I think it's a very relatable story to a lot of people.
0: I mean, what about you? Um, why put your, your, for lack of better terms, your transgressions and your struggles out there?
1: I think for me, you know, a part of it is related to that stigma piece. You know, when we look at addiction and substance use disorders, and the you know the addict who's still struggling it's sometimes hard to see or maybe get a feel for you know this sense that when i was doing that when i was caught up in it i knew what i was doing was wrong you know and i made i did horrible things um, you know things that i've learned from but at the same time the gifts through recovery are something that I wanted to really highlight. I know often what's out there in sort of the Hollywood or media are the horror stories, right? Because they're exciting to to read and listen to and and hear about these crazy stories of active addiction. But I wanted to really highlight the transition and the transformation that is possible from that into recovery. And I think that that's something for me that. I, can't, I couldn't write a book and just talk about sort of all the positives of recovery and sort of where my life is today without honestly exposing what I had been through um, and where I had made mistakes and where I had done things that, that I knew were wrong. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's the only way to paint a clear and complete picture is to include both sides of the story.
0: I want to take our listeners a little deeper into what your mother and family were experiencing in this difficult time, and and then we can talk about the other side of the experience where you were in all this. Um, Madeline wrote, layered over the fatigue and sickness and ink were the stories. uh, One wild story after another told with skill that would have made Harry's Irish grandfather proud police pulling him over excuses for this delay here this loss there coming home after a semester at college of charleston because the place was too clicky a story years later of his daughter's lost baby shower money eight hundred dollars evaporating with no explanation i insisted he look one more time he wanted to look and come over back crying and i was crying too take us a little uh, deeper into the experience of addiction when it comes to the strain it puts on yourself and your family.
1: So I think that, that little excerpt, you know, sums up from my mom's eyes, kind of what she was seeing: were these crazy stories and these deceptions. And, you know, that shows from my end, everything that I was doing was trying to cover up hide to not expose what was really going on um for me you know if you fast forward beyond the beginning right of where i'm in early high school and experimenting to the point where i'm completely addicted to opiates um You know, towards the end of my run in active addiction, you know, I found out that I was going to be a father. Um, I was 20 years old, completely caught in the grips of addiction, could not stop using, couldn't manage money, couldn't be honest. And I found out I was going to be a dad. And, And in that moment, for someone so incredibly unprepared for that, I felt a great hope because I thought that maybe I might be able to to stop. But the thing with addiction was on my own, I was incapable. So for that next year, the experience of and sort of the the double-sided nature of it was I had myself convinced that In order to take care of my daughter, in order to not be sick, not be, you know, just completely unavailable, I had to use more drugs. I knew it was wrong. I knew I wanted to stop, but I wasn't able to. So every day I would wake up and try to rationalize the idea that, you know, if I don't get drugs, I'm going to be so sick that I can't function. And if I do get drugs, then maybe I can read her a bedtime story. Maybe I can take care of her. You know, those are the sort of the horrifying things that mentally um, and spiritually and emotionally just destroyed me. You know, the sense of hopelessness I felt uh, was overwhelming. You know, you said earlier, and I wrote in the book, I grew up in, you know, an upper middle class, home and had all the love and support I could want. You know, I've watched my dad succeed in business. I've watched my mom succeed in a couple of different careers and then now in politics. And I found myself completely incapable of just not stealing or just not lying or just not using drugs for one day at a time. And it made me feel like I was a horrible, horrible person uh, because I knew it was wrong. But what I found sort of after that, you know, we can get more into the recovery side later, but, you know, when I I look at the stigma and the way that I felt more than anything, every decision I made was based in fear, fear that I was going to get caught. Fear that, you know, all of my loved ones would leave me if they knew the things that I was really doing. And just fear of this lifestyle that I knew was killing me, you know. So it wasn't until recovery that, that I've been able to alleviate those fears, you know, and, and find some faith and hope um, and optimism in my life. And, you know, it's just transformed everything. But every day when I was using, there was complete and utter chaos because I needed there to be in order to to hide what was really going.
0: We need to pause from this fascinating conversation to tell you about one of our annual sponsors. BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is hosting the annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March the 1st, from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passion for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free, allowing anyone interested in participating in this highly regarded series. This year's speaker is Dr. Doug Weaver, Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's lectures are entitled, Holy Spirit Power, Baptist and the Experience of Pentecostalism, and Baptist and the Charismatic Experience, from Cessationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Hinson for more information or to register. You talked about that uh, just a little bit, you know, this kind of, um, this spotlight that's felt on you because, you know, you happen to have a parent that's a, a public figure, like a politician. You know, my family lives in a fishbowl since I'm the pastor of, a, you know, of a church. Uh, talk to us a little bit more about the experience of addiction, a- along with the pressure to, you know, to not screw things up for your mother as she, as she ran for office. So, and even before she got into
1: politics, you know, I found, and it only got worse once she really more so entered the the public arena, um, was I was always afraid to ask for help because I didn't think it was the right time. You know, I thought that it would derail something that somebody else was doing. Um, But for me, that pressure was immense. Um, You know, before she was in politics, I watched. My older brother uh, graduate college and the first job he got out of college was in the White House and immediately was able to be promoted and had stayed working in the administration for, I guess, over six years. So sort of the, the shoes to fill and the the expectations to meet were so high that I just felt like I couldn't do it, you know, and. And it was overwhelming in the sense that, you know, I went the complete opposite way. Because if I was so unreliable and just such a mess, then then there would be no expectations on me, Um, you know, and just an incredible amount of fear of if I'm exposed, what could that do to my mom's career? You know, what could that do to my other family members? How could I take away something that they worked so hard for, that they're so passionate about, and so dedicated to, because I can't stop using drugs? That would have killed me, you know, and and the thought of that did paralyze me for a very long time.
0: For many, there's a certain stigma when it comes to addiction, and depending on the community, there might be different stigmas depending on the type of addiction. Uh, You wrote, looking back, I'm sad about that reaction. Why did the truth offend me? Did I think we were too good for it? Damn the stigma, damn my ignorance. Talk to us about some of the common stigmas centered around um, addiction or people experiencing addiction and talk to us about what it might take to clear up some of these stigmas within our communities.
1: I I think that particular excerpt um, was written by my mom, you know, so she was talking about it there, but I think there's so many aspects to the stigma. Um, You know, I think a big part of it and a very real factor that needs to be looked at is a lot of the behaviors and symptoms that come along with addiction are criminal, right? The stealing, the... There's a lot of things that people do out of desperation um, in active addiction. I mean, just having in your possession the drugs is a crime, you know. And I think we've had this this war on drugs in our country and in our community for so long that it's it's been viewed in that way. And I think there's a lot of things that need to happen in terms of breaking down some of that stigma. I think one is giving people an opportunity to understand that it is a disease and giving people an opportunity to talk about it, you know, because if it's looked at as a disease, then it's something we need to try to treat. You know, if it's looked at as this moral failing, which I don't believe it is, then we're just going to continue to shun it. Um, But clearly, I think the war on drugs has not been successful. I don't think it will be. And I think that we need to really just flip the narrative and look at this thing in terms of mainstream medicine and see how we can start helping people. You know, uh, an analogy that I hear often is, you know, if somebody's child is sick of cancer, their whole community is going to come around and, and swarm them with support and love. But if that, if a child is struggling with a substance use disorder, first of all, the family's likely not going to feel comfortable talking about it. And if they do, there's, you know, this sense of judgment and shame that, you know, that maybe something went wrong or why are they doing this. You know, maybe they just need help, which is, is my opinion, you know, and how can we try to connect more people with the right resources so that they can receive that
0: help? Let's talk about faith. Um, you write in the book that in this period of your life, uh, you were an atheist, and yet you found yourself asking God for strength to face this crisis. Take us a little deeper into your spiritual journey at this time in your life.
1: Absolutely. So I was
0: raised, you know, Catholic, big
1: Irish Catholic family. That's what I knew. I went to Catholic school, um, you know, all the way through through high school and you know a Catholic college for a little while. So that was all sort of I had experienced. And I had my great uncle Wally lived with us for a while when I was growing up, and he was a Catholic priest, an amazing, amazing man. Um, You know, but I had this sense of that was the only way to believe that was the only way to have faith. And I didn't believe it. You know, I didn't know that there was I didn't really see an outlet for other avenues towards spirituality or faith. And from my experience of kind of growing up and falling into this Addiction and this life that I hated, and hating myself, and knowing that I was incapable of being honest and doing the right thing, you know, it just gave me this really, really negative sense of myself, of others around me, um, of the church. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate along the way to have come across many spiritual. People from different faiths, you know, and have had the opportunity to learn from them in in different ways so that I could reconnect. You know, when when I was at the end of the road, I was completely spiritually bankrupt. Um, And when I was in treatment at Karen, there was a priest there named Father Bill, um, who was an oblate priest, which is the same same as my uncle was. um, And he said something to me that forever changed my perspective and my outlook. Um, And I think based on how I grew up, the fact that this was said by a priest was even more meaningful. But he told me, he said, Harry, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And in terms of how I viewed myself, that was just so eye-opening, you know, and along the way, I had the first time I really got back into prayer after um, entering into recovery was I was, you know, doing some work with a rabbi. um, And he had sort of talked about the science behind prayer and how it can literally change you know brain. um you know and just different perspectives and and I've found so much value in in listening and seeking to understand different different people of different faiths and trying to sort of pull things that that help me along my journey today i'm an, I wouldn't say I'm a very religious person, but i'm a very is incredibly important to me.
0: how does faith play a role into, uh, sobriety? Um, you know, for example, like I know for, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, they really invite their participants, if they are a person of faith to, to lean into their spiritual journey as part of, um, you know, their journey into sobriety.
1: And that, and that's been a very important part of my journey. I think that, you know, first, just to kind of preface and say, there are many different avenues to recovery without that. Um, But for me, it's been incredibly important. And I think a big part of it is the amount of fear and hopelessness that I felt, you know, if I still felt that today, it'd be much more likely that I'd find myself falling back into drugs. And I needed to replace that with faith and hope. Um, you know, and and fortunately that I've been able to do that, um, because I need that to lean on, you know, I need to have faith that things are going to be okay. Um, when I first went into treatment, I didn't believe that I could live a life without drugs, but I started acting in a way based on what people told me to do. That brought me to a point where, you know, I haven't used drugs in over eight years. I haven't wanted to use drugs in a very, very long time. So given that example, it's easy to kind of look back and see it. You know, see that the miracle was there. Um, you know, and for me, I, I hold on to that and I remember that. And, and if there's things that I can't see yet, that doesn't mean it's not there. You know, and that's where my faith comes into play.
0: Where does the church fit into the conversation about uh, journeying with those facing addiction?
1: I think that sort of as a whole, there's maybe not enough consensus. I think that there's some progress being made um, but, you know, different churches and and depending on the individual, um, you know, who's there, I think there needs to be more of a sense of kind of understanding of this issue and more of looking at it, again, not as a moral failing, but as as something that, but I think we need the leaders in the church to really continue to look at this as something that's not a moral failing. I think the teachings of the church are pretty clear when it comes to helping those in need and welcoming people with open arms. Um, But I think that because of some of the nature of the way that substance use is um, visible, you know, again, going back to kind of the lying, the deception, some of those things that are morally wrong. I think far too many people write write off those who are struggling, um, and should be more welcome, welcoming and open to trying to reach out a hand and help them.
0: Let's talk uh, legislation for a few minutes. You know, big news on the fight against the opioid crisis came, um, you know, in the last really 15 months. But maybe it was overshadowed by this thing called COVID 19 you know, but big pharma took a big hit when numerous states and individuals won multi-billion dollar lawsuits against the companies for their propagation of the, the opioid crisis. Uh, this is a big step. However, what what are other legislative actions that need to be uh, taken to help care, um, prevent and and treat those with addiction um, to, to legal opioids? For sure. I, you know, I think
1: I'm glad you brought that up. It is a big step um, in the right direction. And at the same time, it's, you know, a step that's really seeking accountability for something that's already happened. I think for me looking forward, continuing to fight for funding for treatment, you know, for access to people, um, to be able to receive residential treatment. You know, when you look at public funded, treatment we need to increase the quality of care and look at it in terms of outcomes and find ways that we can better serve everyone whether they have resources or not and i think a big component of it is looking at the criminal justice system and how many people are arrested and incarcerated because of a simple possession um you know, I'm not saying you can't hold people accountable, but what I am saying is I've seen, you know, a lot of people who have made mistakes that weren't violent or weren't, you know, wishing any ill will towards someone else, but they just happen to have something in their possession because they suffered from this disease. And now that's a black mark on their record forever. Um, you know, I think trying to offer treatment to help these people um, is something that we need to do a better job of, instead of just continuing the, the cycle of marking it as criminal um, and putting people in and out of the system over and over again, without giving them an opportunity to receive help.
0: What's your hope for the book? My
1: main hope for the book is just that it can help someone. You know, I I think that for a lot of people struggling with this, whether it's the individual or a family member, it can feel hopeless. And I hope that our story can shine a light on the hope that's there through recovery. And also, I want people to know that it's okay to talk about it in their own time. And I think that we need to just continue to to share stories from all different avenues. Um, Because somebody who may not relate to mine, they may relate to my mom's portion, or they may relate to another story. But this affects so many families across this country and across the world that I think we need to start talking about it more Um, you had mentioned, and it's, you know, it's true, we, with everything happening right now with COVID, um, this has definitely been overshadowed a bit, and not to say that that's not justified, because, you know, what's happening with COVID is quite scary, but the numbers that came out, which only were a 12-month period ending in May, so it only had just the beginning aspects of Of COVID, the overdose numbers are way up. Um, And I think when we see the overdose numbers in total for the year 2020, it's going to be really scary to see how many people are struggling right now Um, and it's not being talked about. And when we look at the things that are in place to protect people from COVID, a lot of those, unfortunately, are really detrimental to people in recovery. You know, a lot of the the aspects of recovery that really focus on community support and just being around other people, whether it's 12 step groups or, you know, other meetings, whatever it may be. So much of that is based in the relationships and interactions with people, which is a lot harder right now with COVID. Um, So I think a lot of the things that are there to help people from COVID are making it more difficult for people in recovery, especially early recovery. And we need to continue to be able to to deal with COVID, but also um, focus a little bit more on this issue again.
0: Well, if you wanna stay connected with Harry and with Madeline, follow them on social media. Of course, go out and purchase Under Our Roof wherever books are sold. Harry, thank you for allowing your remarkable story to be a catalyst of support and change for those experiencing addiction and those of us who love someone who is experiencing it.
1: Thank you so much for having me and all the work that you're doing to continue to highlight this and so many other important issues.
0: This podcast is presented to you by McAvee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.